I want to just start uh, by just uh, thinking a little bit about uh, nature and some of the most powerful things that we see in nature, things uh, like the roaring waterfalls, the, the, the flashes of, of lightning, carrying all that electricity flying through the night sky, uh, even something as destructive as an active volcano. The, these are things which are very powerful, but often they're, they're actually very beautiful. They're beautiful viewed from a distance, right? We, we see these things and we kind of say, wow, look, look at that. Uh, but when you get close, when you get close to these things, when, you, when you're standing beside the waterfall, when you can hear the roar, when you feel the weight of the water that's coming down, there, there is a little bit of, of fear, a, a sense of the power of the thing that you saw from a distance. So that there is a fear, but also a greater sense of beauty. Right? When you're right beside the waterfall, you, you understand it, you see it in a way that you didn't when you saw it from far away. And so as we approach the Christmas season, uh, there's a lot of talk of baby Jesus. And everybody likes baby Jesus because baby Jesus isn't threatening, right? Every, everybody likes the baby when they view him from a distance. But today what our text is going to get us to do is it's going to ask us to draw close. To draw close to the baby who came as a king. And there, there is going to be a sense of, of fear of who this king is, but I hope also a greater sense of beauty in, in seeing the king as he truly is. So with that in mind, please open your Bibles, if you have them with you, to Psalm 2. That's where we're going to be for the majority of our time. Uh, today, uh, we've been in our series uh, looking at where is the king. We have uh, looked at some of the kings that uh, Israel has had. We looked at King Di uh, Saul and then King David. Uh, and now we are going to look at a, a key text, Psalm 2, which bridges the gap between King David and King Jesus. Last week was all about there is a greater king, a greater plan. We're now going to start to see a little bit of who Jesus is. And we're going to land that plane Tuesday night uh, with the wise men where they actually come to the king. So Psalm 2, just a little background uh, before we start. It's a, a psalm written by King David. Uh, it doesn't say that right in the psalm, but if you go to Acts chapter 4, the apostles, they quote it. They say David wrote it. Uh, so it's a psalm written by David. Uh, and it's going to build on that promise that we saw last week. The promise that God is going to give a, uh, the kingdom to an heir of David. It's going to expand that promise and give us a true glimpse of our king. So David kind of lays it out for us. He gives uh, kind of some truths generally, kind of the first half of it. Uh, and then the, the, the latter half, he turns to application. He gives us some responses we should have and closes with a promise. So we're going to see today uh, three truths. We're going to see two responses and one promise. Three truths, two responses, one promise. So if you have your Bibles, uh, look with me at Psalm 2 verse 1. Why do the nations rage? And the peoples plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Saying, let us burst their bonds apart. Let us cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. He will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. Saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. 
Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Uh, So the first thing we are going to see is three truths about the king. And the first truth we see about the king is that there is a rebellion against the king. Uh, Look with me again at verse 1 to 3. Uh, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So verse 2, it's telling us this rebellion is against the Lord and against his anointed. Uh, Who is the anointed that it's talking about? the, The term there, the Hebrew word is Mashiach, which we would translate Messiah. And it's a term that means uh, anointing. Uh, King Saul was an anointed one. King David was an anointed one. Uh, But there is a a greater anointed one that it's speaking of. David, he's writing this from his perspective as as a king, but he's looking forward to that greater plan, that greater promise that God talked about. And he's looking forward to Jesus. The the New Testament writers, they quote this psalm, and when they do, they use the word uh, Christos, the word word we would translate Christ for Messiah. And so when we say Jesus Christ, What we're saying is, is Jesus the Messiah? Jesus the anointed one? Jesus the king? So Kanye's right. Jesus is king. (laughs) Right? That's what we're saying when we say Jesus Christ. And so if we look at verse 3, it highlights for us the nature of the rebellion. There's this language of bursting bonds apart, casting away. It's the image of a, a prisoner who's kind of bound against an oppressor, wants to be free from his shackles, free from the authority of, of a king. And I think we see that in our, uh, our culture, our society, and even our lives today. Uh, there are many people who would say, yeah, life would be better if we just don't obey King Jesus. Right? Like, cast off the bonds of religion, of morality. Uh, be liberated, free. Do what you think is best. Don't, don't listen to, to some authority. And, and some of you may be saying, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't reject Jesus' authority. I reject that there is any authority. I, don't, I reject that there's a higher authority that's going to tell me how I ought to live. And if, if you're here, then, then my response to that would be simply, if there isn't a higher authority, then, then how do we know if anything is right or wrong? How do we know if anything is moral? Uh, take the Nuremberg uh, trials in 1945 as an example. Uh, so these trials, if you're not aware, uh, the, the Nazi generals, officers uh, in the Second World War are, were tried by an international uh, court for their, their war crimes against uh, the, the Jewish people, other minority groups, and, and just the, the atrocious things that they committed. But the prosecutors there, they ran into a problem. And, and the problem was the Nazis never actually did anything that was technically illegal. Everything they did w- was by the book. They changed the laws so that everything they did was, was a legal thing. So they couldn't try them by American law, British law. And so what they had to do is they had to appeal to a higher authority. They had to say there's something else. There is some kind of other moral law which people should be bound to. That that this is wrong even if everybody else around you says it's right. Uh, Even if your nation says that this is a right thing, there is a moral obligation you have. And, And you can be held accountable for it. And indeed they were. So if, if, there, if we want to have any morals at all, there must be some kind of higher authority. And, and so is it possible then that that higher authority, that we are not always living in, in accordance with it? That there, there are things that perhaps we don't agree with with that higher authority, where we rebel. 
I think this is, this is difficult for us because it's something that's ingrained in us. We've, we've seen it before. In the very beginning, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, God gives them rules. One, one tree, any tree you can have except one. But what does the serpent say? The serpent says, is God, is God limiting your freedom? No, 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 cast away these bonds. You don't need to do that. Be your own king. Don't listen to the king. Do what you want. And indeed, like, like an inherited disease, this now infects all of us. So there's, there's many ways that we kind of crown ourselves king. We, we, we are selfish. We want everything to be about us. Uh, some of the ways we do that, we just reject the authority of the king altogether. We say, I don't want anything to do with that. Uh, but, and some of us, I mean, we would say there is a king. If, 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 if someone asked us, is Jesus your king? We would say, yeah, he is. But our life doesn't bear that out. We live as if we are the king of our life. And, and there's perhaps a, an even more subtle, an even more dangerous way that this gets played out. And that is that we can obey the king's laws. We can obey the king's rules, but for our own purposes. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, he was a, a British preacher of the late 1800s. He gave an illustration to explain this. He, he told the tale of the king, the carrot, and the horse. And he said, once upon a time, uh, there was a king who ruled over all the land. Uh, and there was a, a gardener. And this gardener grew an enormous carrot. And so he came before the king one day and he said, oh, king, uh, this, is, this is the greatest carrot I have ever grown or ever will grow. And I want to give it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. And the king discerned the man's heart. And, and he said, thank you. I, I clearly see that you are clearly a good steward. Uh, I have a plot of land. I would love to give it to you as a gift. Here, you, you can garden it all. And the, the man went away rejoicing. And there was a nobleman, though, who overheard this conversation. And, and he thought, man, if that's what you get for giving the king a carrot, like, what, what if you gave him something better? And so the next day, the nobleman comes in the court, uh, carrying a, a black stallion behind him. And he comes before the, the king and he says, oh, king, I am a breeder of horses and this is the best horse that I have ever bred or ever will breed. Let me give it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. And the king discerned the man's heart and said, thank you, and simply dismissed him. And the, the man was, was puzzled. And as he was about to leave, the king called after him and said, wait, uh, let me explain. And he said, uh, the gardener, he was giving me the carrot but you were giving yourself the horse. See, see, there is a way in which we can serve the king. We can do things for the king, but we're not doing it for him. We're doing it for us. Right? We can be in rebellion against him, even if we're obeying his rules. See, just being moral can still be rebellion against the king because God wants our hearts, not just our actions. Our, our hearts need to be aligned that the things we do are for the king, not for us. Because then it's all about us. Then we are the king of our life. We're in rebellion against him. And so can I ask you, how might you be in rebellion against the king? It, is it that you're just in outright rebellion? You say, I don't want anything to do with this. I'm going to reject these laws, these rules. Is it that you, you live for the king you, you, or you would say you, you, you live for the king, but you really don't. The, the, the way that you live your life, if people looked at it, they say that you're the king of your life. 
Or is it that you're perhaps, you're serving the king fervently. You're obeying the king. You're laying down your life for the king. You're giving everything you have, but you're doing it for yourself. See, there, there is a universal rebellion against the king. And that universal rebellion extends to us. That's our first point. There is a rebellion against the king. Uh, the second point is that the king is still king. The king is king whether we acknowledge him or not. Look with me at verses 4 to 6. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds him in derision. And then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So God sees the rebellion of the, the nations and he, he laughs. He, 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 at first, it might seem a bit insensitive of God. Why, why is God laughing here? But it's not an evil genius laugh where he's like, ha ha ha, I've got them. It's, it's a laugh at their pure arrogance, at the absurdity of what they are trying to do. I had an example of, of this la, uh, this summer. We were running our kids' day camp here, and so I was uh, kind of leading a group of about 10-year-old boys. There's a bunch of them. And one day, we were just kind of waiting for the craft to be finished. And so boys being boys, they started arm wrestling. And uh, one boy in particular, he was really, really good at it. And so he kind of beat all the other boys, he was undefeated, was feeling really good about himself. And he, so he came up to me and said, David, let's arm wrestle. You're going down. I'm going to defeat you. You are going to lose. <laughs> and what do I do in that moment? I laugh because it's like, you're like up to my waist. Like it's not even going to be a con. Like I won, by the way, just to clarify. Um, <laughs> But it's not really even a contest, like you're a little child. So it's, it, it, it's that kind of laugh that God gives, a laugh at the, the arrogance of these, these people that think that they're going to prevent, what, what they, they, want, they don't want anyone on the throne. And God says, I've already put my king on Zion. Like it's in past tense, verse six. I've, I've already done the very thing you're trying to prevent. And so just because we don't acknowledge Jesus' authority, it, it doesn't make him any less king. Right? It, it, it's like it's space debris that gets pulled into the raging inferno of the sun. It's not going to make the sun like go out. It's not going to make the sun any less brighter. The sun shines on through. And, and the same Jesus' glory, his kingship continues to shine even though we're in rebellion. This is very different than an earthly king. An earthly king or queen, you kind of in, in some way you need the support of your people. Right? Like, if you think about the French Revolution, the people kind of got together and said, uh, we don't really like the monarch. We're not too crazy about this. And so what did they do? <coughs> they killed them. So, but that's, that's not what we see with Jesus. With Jesus, we, 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 we get the picture of someone when even when his subjects are, are in rebellion against him, he still reigns. He's still sovereign. He's still in control. He's still sitting at the right hand of the Father. So it's not the idea that Jesus could be king for you, but not king for me. The claim of the Bible is Jesus is universally king over all. Verse, verse 1, it says the nations rage in vain. Right? There's no point. It's pointless. The king is still king. And that leads us to our third truth, that the king will rule again. Uh, at verse 79, we kind of have a change in the speaker. God was speaking and now the anointed one, uh, Jesus, he comes forward like an army officer who's reading the, the declaration of his, his right to command the army. Uh, Jesus comes forward and says, I have a right to rule the world based on God's decree. Look at what he says here in verse 7. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. 
Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So the first part of the the declaration is that the Messiah will be God's son. This is the enlargement of the promise that God gave to David uh, that we saw last week, 2 Samuel chapter 7. He said, I'm going to give you a kingdom, your heir, your offspring will rule and reign forever, a kingdom that never ends. And God says, "Uh, I will be like a father to him and he will be like a son to me. And so what we see here is that this this son, it's a begotten son. A begotten means to to birth, to father. And so what it it doesn't mean is Jesus is somehow a created being, but what it's talking about is that Jesus is of the very same substance, the very same nature as God. It's not an adopted son, it's a natural heir, the the very same likeness and makeup as the father. So it's it's not any king that's going to reign, but a divine king, a son of God. And we see what the future kingdom of the son of God is going to look like. We see that he's going to come and he's going to crush the rebellion, the rebellion that started he will put an end to. And this this is kind of like what we find uh, in, in the story of Robin Hood. Right? Not the actual Robin Hood guy, but like the Disney version, you know, with the foxes. So in that story, there's, there's been a rebellion. King Richard has left. He's gone off to battle and, 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 and there's been a, a rebellion. Prince John, he's usurped the throne. He's taken over. He's taxing everybody unfairly. The poor little church mice can't eat. It's awful. And so everybody's waiting. They're saying, when is the king going to come back? When is King Richard going to come back and restore things? When is he going to take Prince John off the throne? And that's kind of the image we get of the Messiah, of one that is waiting. They're waiting for him to come back and restore the kingdom, to rule again. Verse 9 says that he is going to break those in rebellion with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like potter's vessel. So so what does that mean? Well, Well, in ancient times, especially among the uh, Egyptian pharaohs, we have archaeological evidence. What they would do is they would have their enemies' names inscribed on pots, on on pottery. And then when they conquered those enemies, what they would do is they would take a rod, a scepter, and they would start smashing those pots. They would smash them to, to show symbolically that they have conquered the enemy. It's complete conquest. They are shattered in pieces. They are nothing. And that's the kind of image that David is drawing on here. He's saying that the king is coming And his conquest will be complete. His conquest will be total. In in fact, the book of Revelation, it it uses that same kind of imagery, right? And it it talks about not Jesus coming as a baby, but the the second coming, when Jesus is coming as the conquering king. Uh, Look with me at Revelation uh, 19. It says, uh, of Jesus, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written. King of kings and Lord of lords. So There's not a a literal sword coming out of Jesus' mouth. But the writer, he's painting this picture of, of this king that is above all other kings. Where, where the nations are to bow before this king. And he's saying, when the king comes, there will be justice. There's people who have usurped the throne. And and like any king, if somebody has been in rebellion, there must be justice. And so there there is a wrath of God that is talked about here. 
a wrath of God that people will face because they have been in rebellion against the king. In fact, when we, we look through the, the book of Psalms, it's a poetic book full of uh, illustrative language. This is, this is the kind of language they use to describe the wrath of God. I, I've just pulled some together and it's, it's terrifying language. It's, it's said that the earth reels and rocks. The foundations of the mountains tremble and quake because he's angry. The, the channels of the sea are seen, the foundations of the world laid bare. His voice flashes forth like flames of fire. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord of all the earth. From the heavens he utters judgment. The earth fears and is still. When the waters see him, they are afraid. The deep tremble. The skies give forth thunder. The earth trembles and shakes before him. Who can stand? And that's a real question, isn't it? Before the true king in judgment, who can stand? Because if we're honest, we've all committed treason. We've all been in rebellion of some kind. And the king is coming. We can no more stand in the perfect presence of God than a newspaper can in the midst of a burning forest fire. We're just consumed by the holiness of God. See, the Bible is, is clear. Jesus is coming again. There, there, was, there is a universal rebellion, but there will be a universal kingdom. The, the kingdoms of the world will become the kingdoms of the Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And that's what David wants to show us. Those are the three truths he gives us. There is a rebellion against the king. The king is still king, and the king will rule again. David then turns to application. He says, in, in light of these things, in light of who the king is, here's how we ought to live. He, he's not uh, being an authoritarian, shove it down your throat, you've got to do this. He's just saying, look, here's reality. Now be wise, O king, be, be warned rulers. Think about how you are to live. And so he gives us two responses to the king. Uh, look with me at verse 10. Now therefore... O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So the first response we see to the king is that we are to serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. So in light of who we've seen Jesus to be, the, the almighty king enthroned forever, the, the call is obey. The call is serve him. Submit to his authority. But also rejoice. If you've seen the king truly, you, you want to rejoice in his goodness, in the goodness of his kingdom that he's bringing. But it says, do this with fear and with trembling. So, so what, what does that mean? Well, if we've seen our king truly, if we've truly seen Jesus the king, there should be a genuine fear. There should be a fear of the wrath of God that on our own we stand beneath the waterfall of his wrath. Jesus says as much in Matthew 10. He says, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. He's talking about other people. He's saying, no, rather fear him 
who can destroy both soul and body in hell. There, there is a fear that we should have of God, a, a genuine fear. But notice also in our text, uh, it doesn't say serve the Lord out of fear. It says serve the Lord with fear. So serve, to serve the Lord out of fear would be to say, you know what, the, the, I, I'm just obeying because there's consequences. If I don't do what's right, uh, then I'm going to be punished. I'm just, I'm worried about what's going to happen. That's to serve out of fear. He says, no, you're to serve with fear, to rejoice with trembling. Gospel obedience is, is different. And so what does it look like? Let me give you an illustration that I, I think will help clarify it. A couple of years ago, uh, Clarissa and I, we took our family down to the Seattle Zoo. Uh, and they have a really fascinating animal. Uh, one of the most interesting ones we saw was the Malayan tiger. So I think we have a picture of it up on the screen there. Uh, so this, this tiger, they've got it in this, this big fenced off uh, area. But what's really cool is you can kind of go right up to the fence. And so at first we saw the tiger, it was kind of off in the, the distance. And you're like, that's cool. There's a tiger, it's kind of cool. And then the tiger came right up to the fence and it walked right past us. And as it did, you're seeing the power of this, this animal, the power in its hind legs, the power of its jaw, the sharpness of its claws, the eyes that pierce right through you. And there, there is a genuine fear of that animal because you're like, that thing could kill me in an instant if it chose to. But in seeing the power, you also see the beauty right? You're like, look at this majestic creature. It looked cool from far away, but when I see it close, when I see how powerful it really is, I see it differently. That There is a greater beauty, but it's only because I'm on the other side of the fence, right? Like if I'm inside with a tiger, it's a different story. But when I'm safe, there is a fear, but there's also a rejoicing. Uh, John Piper, uh, a pastor, theologian, he, he says it like this. He says, There is an awe or wonder or, or trembling in the presence of grandeur that we want to feel, as long as we are sure it will not destroy us. This trembling does not compete with joy. It is part of joy. There is something profoundly satisfying about being frightened when we cannot be hurt. And, and I think that's what we, we see here. You know, we, we serve God knowing that we are safe behind the fence of his wrath. We, we are safe if you are in Christ. But we serve him conscious of his holiness, conscious of his wrath, conscious of what that means for our sin. We serve him in light of that. And there is, in fact, then a, a deeper joy, and not, not just a mere happiness at who God is as we see him from a distance. And when we draw close, we see, no, that is the wrath of God that should have been ours but isn't. Right? And when, when you see that, there's going to be actual joy because you say, that's what I deserved. But Jesus, he bore that for me. And so the closer we draw to God, the more we will rejoice. And so to be a people who serve the Lord uh, with fear, who rejoice with trembling, means we are people who live beside the fence. We live in that conscious uh, awareness, remembrance of, of who God is. Not just that he is our, our friend, our savior, our rescuer. He is all those things. But he's also king. He is also king. And so can I ask you, how do you see Jesus? Is Jesus your king? Do you see him in all his might and glory when you, when you pray? 
when you, when you think of him, when you are to serve and obey him, is he your king? Uh, the second response then that David gives is we are to kiss the son. To kiss the son. To kiss the son uh, means that to pay homage to, to a, a sovereign, a, a monarch, the way you might kiss the, the queen's hand to say, yeah, I'm on the team of this king. I'm with you. It's a call to, to cast down the weapons of our rebellion, to start waving the, the flag of the kingdom of Jesus. But I think the natural question we have, though, is why? Why, why should we kiss the son? Why should we be on Jesus' team? David answers us very, very clearly. Verse 12. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. So he's saying, submit to Jesus' kingship because if you continue in rebellion, you are going to face the wrath of God. You're, you're going to perish in the way. David is calling out, he's pleading with people. Do you not see your rebellion, it's not just something you can dismiss. It's not just something you can walk away from. Your rebellion is something that affects your eternal soul. There is a king and you need to submit to him. He is king. The question is, is he your king? Right? When, when, when they give those smoking presentations in school, what do they do? They, they, they show you the, the rotten lungs, the rotten teeth, the stats about people dying. Why? Because they say, this, this could kill you. And that's what David's doing here. He's pleading. He's saying, look, there is a king. Are you going to bow before him? Or are you going to continue in rebellion? And so can I ask you, is Jesus your king? And just because you're here on a Sunday morning doesn't mean that he is. You can do all the right things. You can show up on a Sunday morning. does not mean Jesus is your king. For Jesus to be your king, it means he is the highest authority in your life. He is the one that you worship. He is the one who you submit to above all other earthly authorities. Kiss the sun, lest you perish in the way. And so David is not threatening us, but he is pleading. He's saying, if, if you stay out in the rain, you're going to get soaked. So come inside, come, take refuge, take shelter. And that's the beautiful thing we see in the very last line of this psalm. Look with me at the last sign. We've seen uh, three truths, two responses, and lastly, one promise. The promise is, blessed are all who take refuge in him. Isn't it amazing? God now offers refuge to all who would take it. Everyone. An open pardon. Amnesty for all rebels. He says, anyone, anyone who usurped the throne, I actually invite you now to come into my kingdom. Right? God shows his love for rebels in that while they're still enemies, the king dies for him. Right? The, the, the beautiful thing about the gospel is that the wrath of God, it should be on us. But Jesus comes and he, he stands in the way of the bullet. He pushes us aside out of the gallows and enters the hangman's noose for us. He takes the wrath that we deserve on the cross. He takes it so that he, we might find refuge in him. Refuge from the storm of God's wrath. That's a wonderful thing. A, a wonderful thing that the only refuge from God 
is in God. The only refuge from God is in God. That's the only place we can go. We, we can't try and do it on our own. We can't escape it. We all have rebelled. There is nothing we can do except to run to this refuge. Right? Like the, 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 the hymn, Rock of Ages, it so clearly states, nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. That's the call of this passage. Run to the refuge. Run to Jesus. He is the shelter from the storm. That the safest place from God is, is ironically with God. Right? Like in a, in a hurricane storm, where is the safest place to be? In the very center. There is peace. There is calm. And so too, there is refuge from God's wrath in the center. It's still seeing the winds swirl around you. But you are safe. You are on the other side of the fence. And so I encourage you, if Jesus is not your king, run to him. Run to the refuge. He is the only place you can go. The, the door of mercy, it's not just standing ajar. It's wide open. G God is inviting you. Come. Come to the refuge. Get on your knees and ask him, Jesus, will you, will you be my, my refuge? Will you be my strength? Will you be my obedience for me? And I know when we, we come to this passage, we, we read this, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't scream baby in a manger. But it is a psalm like this that makes Christmas all the more amazing. Because it is this kind of king that has broken into the world. This kind of king of all glory, authority, honor, who has sacrificed himself, who has come not in, in robes of royalty, he's come in swaddling clothes. He, he, before he comes in judgment, he came on a rescue mission for rebels, for traitors. This is the God. This is the king we serve. This is the king we celebrate at Christmas. Blessed are all who find refuge in him. Let's pray. Uh, Lord Jesus, you are our king. And we, we, we admit that we come to you in rebellion. That there are many times, even in our life now, where we, we do, do not honor you as king as we should. And we just thank you for your forgiveness, that you are a refuge for us. And, and I pray for those who Jesus is not their king, uh, that you would just work in their hearts. God, that you would soften them, that they would see your beauty and your glory clearly. And would we now, as we, we go into our Christmas celebrations and dinners and parties and all that stuff, would we remember you this season, not just as a baby, but as our King, King Jesus, who is victorious. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.